my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. Although I've been out for several years prior to the launch of YouTube, the platform where I really began to discover contemporary Black LGBTQ plus talent and entrepreneurs, I was recently in the UK and I'm going to borrow a popular British expression. I am gobsmacked to be speaking with one of YouTube's early pioneers, American stand-up comedian, writer, screenwriter, film producer, and activist Samson McCormick. Using his intellect, talents, and humor, Samson does not shy away from encouraging conversations around gay male sexuality and life as an out Black gay man. Samson is a naturally funny and insightful comedian who continues to demonstrate how he can hold his own amongst his straight and non-Black contemporaries. I look forward to conversing with Mr. McCormick and learning more about his life as a Black gay professional. So without further ado, hey, Samson, and welcome. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate you inviting me to speak with you on the Black Gay Diaspora podcast. You do great work, and I'm happy to to be a part of what you're doing. Oh, wow. Thank you. I thank you so much for joining me. Yeah. I'm a little nervous, but I'll be a fan just for a second longer, and then I'll switch to <laughs> professional mode. But yeah, I'm just really excited to be talking with you. Yeah. So how are you? I'm doing great, taking one day at a time. You're from the D.C. area. Is that where you're based? I live in L.A., but I'm from D.C. all day. Southeast represent. For context, Southeast is it's the hood. But it's no place on earth like Southeast D.C. There's so many things about D.C. that I just have to take a moment and celebrate. Go-Go Music. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Go-Go Music. I've heard of it. It's great music that I'm happy is not mainstream, although I do wish those artists mainstream money because it's, it's genius music. Mumbo Sauce is also a staple of D.C., it's a, a sauce. Nobody knows what's in it. I think a little crack is in it. It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, we have Marion Barry, who is our mayor for life. If you ask anybody about D.C. politics and you bring up Marion Barry, his legacy for some people is that he was busted for crack cocaine. But to us, he truly was a man of the people. And he really embodied everything that I wish more of us were in community. If I remember, he had more than one term as mayor. Oh, yeah. He, he's mayor for life. He, he passed in 2014, I believe. But even with him not being physically present on earth anymore, he's still mayor for life. I actually recently interviewed someone else from D.C., Racine Pendarvis. Yes. Yeah. A queen. Another legend. Yes, yes. Yeah, I come uh, from LA. I'm not from LA. I'm from Arizona, but I was living in LA for a long time. So I know kind of sort of the ins and outs of at least navigating life in LA. How long have you lived there? I've been in LA for almost six years. How do you like it? (laughs) I've learned to enjoy it. I, I think when you move to a big city like LA, it's about making it 
for yourself what you needed to be. Yeah, I was there for over 20 years and I like the way it's described. It's a city where a lot of people come to make it, but I have learned or I did learn that you can definitely find your community there. For sure. You know, as I mentioned, I discovered you more than 10 years ago on your YouTube channel at Samson McCormick. You were one of the early pioneers, I think, of YouTube or using YouTube as a platform to to promote yourself. What prompted that decision? My best friend. I have a best friend named Wayne. This August will be 22 years that I've been doing comedy. I was doing it and, you know, I was getting booked and stuff and, and I've always been able to it, it sometimes scares me how well I can relate to people. And a great reward of that has been that people have supported me in such a tremendous way that I realize it's such a blessing. And Wayne was saying to me one day, I don't know if he he's spoken to somebody that was in New York or something. We were in D.C. who were saying that they wanted to have just as much access to the things that I was talking about stuff as the people in D.C. Mm. And so he said, why don't you get on YouTube? And I was like, I don't want to get on YouTube. <laughs> and so um, he was like, I think it would really help if you got on YouTube to connect with our community in a more impactful way, in a way that allows you to, to stretch out a, a bit more. And so I said, all right, whatever. And so I sat down and I remember I made a video called, I made two videos. The first video was about homophobia in this church. It was Greater Mount Calvary in D.C., which I used to joke and say was D.C.'s last legendary black gay club. (laughs) 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 Because it was a church. And I don't just want to label it homophobia. I think we overdo labels on, on certain behaviors and opinions, but I don't think it was the safest place for uh, black gay men to be who were looking to reconcile their sexuality and what was being taught traditionally in church. It also had the same gay men who would be out on Friday and Saturday night at all the gay clubs in the city. Mm -hmm. And so when all the clubs closed down in D.C. and we we couldn't find each other, we we went to Greater Mount Calvary to find all the the black gay men. They were all in there. So I used to joke about that. Anyway, that's besides the point. Mm -hmm. I did a video about Greater Mount Calvary and, and their relationship with the black gay community And then I did another video called Coming Out as a Black Gay Man. Mm. And that video got 20,000 views. Wow! And I was like, I called him. I said, "Um, what am I supposed to do with this? (laughs) And so um, the true reason why I do what I do is, is, number one, I've always been genuinely funny. You know, I say that humbly. That's a talent that I've been blessed with. And also, it's been a great way to connect with community, right? And so I started getting these letters from black gay men, white gay men were watching, and a lot of people's parents and things like that. I remember sitting, recording those videos on the windowsill, because I grew up in church. I was dealing very heavily with religion and my sexuality. And so that was my way to communicate. I had no idea who, who I was communicating with, right? But the people who were reaching back out to me let me know that I had community as well and that that I was normal. So it was a two-way thing. For me, discovering you, I had already been out for a few years, but I was at that point of awareness because it wasn't planned, but I had 
just because it was an available apartment. I had moved to West Hollywood and it was around the time I came out in the late 90s. And part of it was okay. But, you know, being Black, I was like, I want to know where more of us are. And I did find that out through friends, you know, going to The Catch and a few other places. But it was when I discovered your platform that I was hearing the internal dialogue that some of the, the questions that I had about myself and my own experiences, specifically as a Black gay man. So for me, it was like, you know, finding water in the desert. And then, of course, you know, your humor is something that really pulls people in. And so I just, I just ate it up. And I'll say that one of my favorite episodes of yours was when you interviewed your mother, because to mm. me, that was, that was definitely a beautiful episode. And it was also to me, because I never had that, you know, my mom knew I was, was out or gay, but we never had those types of conversations. So for both you and your mother, I thought that was a very brave and beautiful thing to, to not only do, but also to release to the public. Our relationship is far from perfect in that aspect of being able to, you know, I didn't get thrown thrown out on the street when she found out that is a blessing. I was 16 or 17 and I've always known that I like guys, but I was I was trying to date girls. And so I remember this girl, she was crazy about me. And I thought she was crazy. I was like, I mean, she was just like, oh, my God, I want you to I want to have your baby. And I mean, that I was like, you're talking Chinese to me now. I don't understand nothing you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> and so we we would go on dates and things, but I never tried to make any moves on her. And so after about six months of this, she calls me late one night. She says, okay, I got a question for you. And I'm like, all right, what's up? She was like, I noticed you show me no attention. All the other boys that I go out with, they be trying to do this and that, but you don't. So I got a question and I'm like, okay. She was like, do you like hot, sweaty men or hot, sweaty women? And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> hot, sweaty men, please, for 500. <laughs> and she called my mom and told my mom. What was that like for you? terrifying because I didn't grow up in the house where I could make mistakes. I didn't grow up I didn't grow up in a house where I could express myself authentically. So, you know, anything that went contrary to being perfect, I thought I, you know, was the end of the world. And so I knew gay was far from perfect. And when I got the call from my mom telling me come home immediately, I just knew it was the end of the world. So that was terrifying. But I think it needed to happen. How did you, because you talk about growing up in the church, and you kind of, I think, mentioned too, that some people stay in that place of not really reconciling their spirituality with who they are as specifically gay men. How did you start that process of acceptance despite that? It was a very painful process to recognize that in order to uh, truly be who I needed to be, I needed to find a way to reconcile faith and who I've always been. And so for me, it was painful because it involved wrestling with the thought of going to hell. And so that kept me up many nights. And I was 21 or 22 when I really first started dealing with that. And I remember I would be laying in bed late at night and I could see pages of the Bible in my head burning. I could see them burning and I could hear all these, you know, what they call clobber passages. Hmm. I think any gay man who's been to church knows what those are. It got to a point where I, I really just had to not be afraid of hell 
And I said, you know, nothing like that could be worse than living in fear of just simply being who I am. And when I started to walk authentically, I started to meet people and have experiences that affirm that. So I would meet ministers who at the time were not openly affirming queer people in their congregations, but who said, I know that to preach a sermon that's damning people to hell is not right. I would meet people's parents and stuff and, you know, people out in the community. And and it was just so much love. And I said, okay, if these human beings that I'm meeting can show me so much love for being who I am, why can't God? I didn't grow up with consistent religion, but I know the residue of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, they don't understand that that doesn't just affect self-image. That also affects how comfortable you're willing to to be intimately with another man. Mm. Thoughts about having sex with another man, thoughts about your body, thoughts about even lust, like to look at another man and go, wow, he's beautiful. You feel guilt for that. And so it's a lot deeper than just, oh, I, you know, I shouldn't be gay. It's like all this internalized shame that you have to work through. I really do believe for many of us, I think you have to kind of do it every day. And I hadn't thought of that. What you just said about like, yeah, acknowledging up here that I'm attracted to the same gender is one thing. But yeah, there is that thing too. It's it's about the lust. It's about the sex. It's about the intimacy. And I have to be okay to say, you know, when I look at that particular one, what do I find attractive about him? And that is okay. For me, my thing is, I really like to spoil my men, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so when I'm spoiling up on whoever, of course, I've had to work through that because you hear all these things, especially growing up, why are you treating this dude like a girl? All the stuff you hear, you just have to work through that and go, it's okay for me to show love. It's crazy that we live in a society that celebrates us killing each other, but not us loving each other in, in whatever capacity that is. Mm. Well, I know you've talked about it a couple of times about just yeah, there's, you know, us specifically as gay men and intimacy, but just with Black men in general and, and intimacy and this fear of it. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with it. Women are encouraged to express intimacy in ways that are non-sexual. Why can't we do that for ourselves, either within a relationship or just as friends? And we do it. If you look at straight men, there are a lot of straight men who never go home to their wives. They always with their homies. They eat with their homies. They cry with their homies. They get mad when their homies spend the time with their girlfriends. And that's a relationship. <laughs> you know, they just go home to eat and, you know, they might have sex with their girlfriend. You know, we don't like to talk about it, but sometimes they be having sex with their homies too. Those are the more complicated parts of, of human behavior and sexuality that we're still evolving as a society to be able to to look at as simply human nature and not feel that they are too taboo to talk about. Mm, yeah, I like that. You mentioned earlier about your gift for, for comedy, and I remember an episode or you were interviewed with a show called In My House or In The House? The House, yes. The House, yeah. And I remember, I think it was a question that was posed to you about that, like, is it something you could learn or is it a gift? When did you discover your gift for comedy? When I was in preschool, 
I remember I used to preach these sermons because I grew up in church. So that was the, the first thing that I saw that was interesting. And I would preach these sermons about cartoon characters, you know, and I remember the, the, the daycare counselors, they were tickled by that. But the two fondest memories that I have of three really fondest memories that I have of humor were one, I used to get put out of class all the time when I was growing up. Always very intelligent, but because I've always kind of been an, an out-of-the-box learner, a lot of the teachers didn't recognize that. So what they they called me, what was back then, they called it retarded. They used to put me in those classes. I'm grateful that I had a strong enough mind not to believe that. And I met a teacher, my second grade teacher, Miss Diane Walters, was the one who said to me, she said, you're really smart but you just need a little bit more structure. And so she said, how about this? How about if you do your work, then every Wednesday you can stand up in front of the class and do whatever you want. Wow. And I said, okay. And my grades went from D's and E's to all A's and I think like a B or something like that. Also, I remember I was in the hallway once. I was probably in what, fourth grade, third grade, fourth grade, and we used to have those scholastic book fairs. You remember the scholastic book fairs when we were growing up? We were coming out of one of those. <laughs> and it was like some sixth graders or something. I had them in the hallway cracking up. And I thought to myself, self, I said, wow, I can make people laugh. When I was in fifth grade, I had two teachers, Mr. Mufford and Miss Lynn. They used to join our classes together for, I forget what it was, but Mm -hmm. You remember those rolling TVs that we used to get excited about when they used to come into class? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> one of those was late because one of the other teachers had borrowed it. And so they were waiting for the TV to come in and they said, well, Samson, you can get up in front of the class and tell some jokes. I remember all 60, 65 of those kids were in there cracking up. The teachers were cracking up. Teachers were coming out of their classrooms to come peek in the classroom that I was in to listen to me. And I was like, wow. I really sometimes have to tell myself it's okay to be that blessed with a, such a strong talent. You had a lot of angels, it sounds like, around you that saw that too. I've always been very curious. I've always been very witty. I am highly creative. I can turn anything into comedy. I'm a great storyteller. And I have a great mind for like taking things and I can like because I grew up really poor. So I think I, this is where I get this from is um, very resourceful. I can look at any obstacle and I can like rearrange it and create really good results. And so for a lot of the challenges that I've had in my life, that along with being able to maintain a great sense of humor has allowed me to remain positive and overcome a lot of really challenging things. Thank you for sharing what you shared so far, because again, I just know you from seeing you on YouTube and, and seeing some of your other projects. It's that thing of you can't know a person until you hear their story. And I'd be like, oh, that guy's always been confident. He's always been on uh, point and everything. And not that you haven't, hadn't been in, in certain aspects, but you know, sharing about you know, some of the internal dialogue that you had to fight against. It's like a reminder that I don't know if warrior is the right word, but that you've challenged yourself and, and overcome a lot. I think both. And I think we all are warriors in different ways. You know, it's like be kind because we're all fighting a battle. 
I've been confident enough to survive in many ways. And then when it got past surviving, I had to learn how to become more confident in order to become better. And so from here, it's just becoming better and better. And so that means becoming a better man. That means serving our community in a more effective way. I don't think I've ever used my talent just for self-gratification, but I think I have also had to learn how to use it to just be a more effective human being. And then also, when I talk about facing challenges, you know, in this business that we're in, definitely does have room to provide more opportunities for Black men, Black people, Black queer people. I've also recognized that I have talent in a way that allows me to help other talent to move ahead and not have to deal with some of the challenges that I face. You've been in comedy for over 20 years, being out and as a Black gay man, standing your ground. And, you know, now we have more known out Black gay comics. You paved the road for, for that to be possible. You've talked about being in environments where you had to find ways to to stand your ground. But how was it for you when you decided to pursue this, this profession to to be honest about that part of yourself on a public platform or on a stage? For the first two years, I was just goofy. <laughs> you know, I was just on stage talking about smoking weed. I think I, I did used to have a couple of baby mama jokes and stuff because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Mm. And I remember there used to be a, a club that I a coffee house that I used to do every Monday in DC called Soho Cafe. It was in DuPont Circle. And it was right across the street from the fireplace. And it was a couple doors down from this old legendary gay bar called Mr. P's. I remember I would sneak in with my hoodie on and sit in the back until they would call me up on stage. And then I would get on stage and and I would tell my jokes and I was scared that some of the gay men would come in and they would come in because, you know, on the way out the club, they would come in and use the bathroom. Went here in the club last week. And I was just like, oh, shit. So <laughs> so I said, OK, well, I, I don't want to be hiding from folks. I just never wanted to have to deal with being accused of being somebody who I was not. And so I just started talking about it on stage. At the time, you know, as you just said, there was me and Andre Kelly. I was in D.C. He was out here on the West Coast. In a way, that made it a little bit more fun because <laughs> you had to represent for the gays when you was up there. That challenged me to, to always be the funniest one on the show. Represent in a really strong way. There were so many club owners and bookers who didn't think an audience wanted to see somebody who was gay. And I wasn't being booked in the white gay spaces. It really just came down to being so funny that they had to see me. Yeah, because your, your humor is universal, and especially around specifics around being Black church and just, you know, being in a Black home. It's universal, so of course they can relate. As I get older... It's always been strong, but it's getting stronger in a way where I can really go wherever I want to go. And even in, in the social climate that we're in now, I can talk about things that a lot of other people, not just comedians, but people are afraid to talk about. And people get angry with me 
on Twitter and stuff like that. But if they come to a show, they're going to fall in love because it's impossible to not love me as number one. <laughs> and then number two, mm-hmm. like you said, humor is universal. Mm-hmm. I believe that if you have the right intentions and if you have a firm grasp on what it is that you're trying to say and how you deliver it, it might ruffle some feathers, but you'll have the right outcome. This hasn't just been effective in black spaces, but it's also been very effective in you know, white spaces. I mean, up until the pandemic, and I'm about to go on a big tour now, uh, coming up soon. Mm-hmm. But up until the pandemic, I was I was performing in places like Billings, Montana, and Des Moines, Iowa, and Bradenton, Florida, and these different little towns in Texas, and places where my black gay ass shouldn't have been at, <laughs> especially alone driving at night, doing shows, getting out at 10 p.m. What kept me safe, I believe, was I was able to make people laugh. We saw each other's humanity. I'm in a big discussion with parts of the the gender non-binary and some of the trans community about it now is is allowing people to be themselves. There were plenty of people who, who have come to my shows who didn't agree with me being black or gay. And I let them know it's okay. I remember this one lady stood up at a show and she called me the N-word. She said, I hate niggas. And I said, and that's okay, because I got a couple I hate, too. (laughs) (laughs) She she laughed. (laughs) She sat down. I remember she came up to me after the show. She was like, you just think you're clever. I recognize in doing that, though, that it's been a lot more than just humor. It really has also been about connecting to people and helping us recognize that It's important that we see each other and and allow each other to be each other and and find ways that we can still connect regardless. I knew of you, first of all, as a a comedian, but, you know, you've also grown and expanded professionally as as an actor, as a director, as a writer, and as a producer. Was that part of your original plan when you decided to get into the world of entertainment? Nope. (laughs) No, I wanted to do comedy. And I wanted to do like some sitcoms and things like that, but I was having such a hard time breaking into television. You have to have that in order to like get booked more so you can have bigger audiences. But I think I just ended up being called to something a lot bigger than that, which is, again, it's been very challenging, but I've become a better person because of it. Not just for myself, but creating a space in this business for our stories to be able to exist. Of course, you deal with a lot of contention, but I believe we should have people in these spaces like media and politics, activism, the church, these sectors of industry and community that do influence people on a large scale. I think you need people in those places that you can really trust. Mm. I believe that we as as black people and then we as black queer people, we, we contribute so much in so many ways to culture overall that we should see things that we are proud of. And so that's what I contribute to. I saw this years ago, the first time I left the U.S. to travel, that black, uh, specifically not to negate other black cultures throughout the world, but black American culture, it's universal, it's everywhere. 
like you said, it, it influences the languages, be it in Italian and Swedish. <laughs> People are saying these expressions. And the first time I heard that, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and to your point, we need to see ourselves there, too. And I know for me, definitely, as I become more focused in this particular platform, I'm one of these people, I want like what you're doing. I want to see more of our stories. I'm on Netflix and these streaming platforms and I look for gay content. I'm like, nope, 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 nope. Because <laughs> I want to see us. <laughs> content for, for trans people, for her of color and non-binary and not sob stories, but really expansive stories that make us laugh, that scare us. And not scary as in some of the shit we've had to overcome. I'm talking about scary as in just like, whoa, that was twisted. You know, that was, I, I love horror, you know, so some good horror films, comedies, documentaries, history pieces, even theater. Those are the things I'm really passionate about. I think my journey has been a bit more, um, challenging because it has allowed me to see parts of being a creator, being a Black gay person who's doing this independently, and so many other things that will allow me to, again, be very effective for other people. You see the difference in how it influences their career versus when you've had to, I don't want to say fight all your life, but when you've had to climb. I think it did take a degree of learning for me to understand how important it is, again, for me to show up for other people who are very talented, but who need somebody to kind of put them at the table, open the door for them, give them opportunities, make sure they're making money doing this. Think about it, how much better you can create when you have stable income, how much better and more secure you can, you can create when you can fund projects that you want to fund and things like that. And, and you don't got to be out here. And I wasn't selling no chicken dinners or no, no ass or nothing like that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it, I really did have to rely on faith. And so it's, it's a lot easier when you have more resources. I hear and what I feel is that you're building a community. We do have these gay communities like Castro, it's never felt home for me. <laughs> yeah. I do like that social media, specifically with us in the Black queer community, for me at least, it's helping me to find community. And, and just hearing what you shared is an example of, yeah, I want to make sure that I'm fed, but I also want to make sure that other people are fed too. Mm -hmm. It's that thing too, of, I think as Black people, and it's global, I'm finding out resisting that crab in a barrel mentality. Like I'm the only one that can be at the top of this heap. It's like, no, we could all be here. Yeah, I had to learn that because even at my age now, I'm still very ambitious. But I think that gets exhausting. I do think to a degree, it comes from a place of insecurity. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you this. I have been out for years getting standing ovations every night in places I know my black ass shouldn't have been at. And so for me, I just always thought, I said, okay, well, I have this thing. Why aren't these doors opening for me so that I can be more expansive? And for a while, I was terrified of the fact that there could be other Black gay comedians. I was having a hard time as one of the only ones. So I'm like, okay, well, if I'm one of the only ones, what's going to happen if it's five more of us? And I just had to let it go. That was very painful for me. 
because I saw a lot of other people get things that I had been working for for so long. That's a blow to your ego. <laughs> you know, I don't think I've necessarily intentionally operated from that space, but that really hurt. That really, really hurt. Again, it made me better. I was able to start sitting back and, and see stuff they were doing and go, you know what? That's good. Good for him. And then I started going out to their shows, you know, and they had known me and a few of them have said, you know, they started because they saw me doing it. Mm. It helped me to get over that. Those experiences made me be able to really be able to celebrate other black gay, particularly comedians. <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the things that was really hard but it it made me better. It's a level of maturity that I know takes a lot of being honest about the emotions, all of them. I remember years ago, so I moved to LA to be an actor. Okay. I fell out very quickly because I was so focused on other people's stuff. I got into a negative space, but it sounds like you got to the other side of that. I really, really love comedy. And my intention in this business has never been anything other than just to bring joy and light and positivity to the world, be great at what I do. I mean, of course, I want money and material things, more money and material things. But I think I've I've always been in it with the right intentions and places that I need to grow. Like you said, I had to do that. Again, it hasn't been pleasant, but it's made me so much better. It takes a lot of courage. You touched on theater, and as an actor, you performed in B-Boy Blues, was it 2013 or so? Yes. Fast forward a few years later, you executive produced the film adaptation of that story, James L. Hardy's novel from 1994. What was that like for you from starting with being on stage in front of people to being one of the people behind the scenes to making it happen on the big screen? A learning experience. And it was a learning experience. I'm growing in not just produce films, but also make sure that even in these independent projects, the actors make money for as long as, you know, I can make sure I'm able to put money in their pockets after the project is done. So that means when the project is done, making sure they can still get royalty payments or that it's so successful that I can pay them for life. And I'm going to get back to your question in a second. I think to really get to that place for us as black gay filmmakers and entertainment entrepreneurs, they're going to need to be some huge breakthroughs in Hollywood at the box office, not on Amazon Prime and stuff where I'm at now. I'm talking at the box office and that's going to happen. I'm going to make that happen. The industry needs to see that there are some black gay projects that can go to the box office and sweep. Outside of the learning that I had to do, how to make sure everybody's talents are recognized on a project, that's important. And most of all, that Black gay boys coming up now have a project to look at that we didn't have when we were coming up. That's most important. You got a project off the ground that it's a classic. I remember when I read that book, I read it before I came out. It was secret similar to like a, a James Baldwin piece. It was one of those stories for me that I was like, when is this going to be a movie? And James Earl Hardy had been working on that for 20 years. 
a couple of people had, had worked with him to try to make it into a film. We were doing a show at the Ira Aldridge Theater in D.C. because the, the play had been on uh, on Broadway, but we were in D.C. I remember telling him backstage, I said, we're going to make this a movie. And so close to 10 years later, we did it. Speaking of projects or films, do you have any ones that you can share that are in the works? I just got finished directing a film by uh, Donnie Hugh Frazier called Ruse Blues. Donnie was in two of my other films that I wrote and produced called Love the One You're With, which is also on Amazon Prime. And another film that I did called Party and Play, which is also on Amazon Prime. So Donnie is in those two. And then he hit me up and he said, I want to write my own film and um, I want you to help me with it. And so he wrote it and I said, OK, well, I'll direct it. And so we put that out and it just went to the Pan-African Film Festival here in L.A., oh, okay. which is a huge deal. It is an Oscar qualifying film festival. And the film was nominated for Best Narrative Feature for a Black Gay Film to be in a Pan-African Film Festival. That's huge. Some of these larger Black film festivals, they, they sometimes they forget to include us for whatever reason. Thankfully, the Pan-African Film Festival does a good job of, of making sure that we're there and we're represented. Congratulations. Thank you. Party and Play was number 13 on LGBTQ films list in the UK, which is huge for a film that had a $10,000 budget. Wow. And independently done to be 13 in another country that I've never been to before. I think it was one of the biggest black gay films of 2021 when it came out. A lot of people did talk shit about it. And it helped me to, to recognize how important it is to believe in what you're doing and kind of filter out those negative voices that are going to be there. I don't want to forget this. Winding down, this is one of my favorite things that you've done recently is your series. I think you started last year, Profiles on Black Gay Love. Mm. Love that. I love it. Thank I love you. It. I love it. Can you share with us about that? Man, so Profiles on Black Gay Love is such a gift. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I really enjoy helping people or being a vehicle for people to tell stories that's right in line with the filmmaking and things like that. And so um, I was sitting in here and I said, I want to talk to Black gay men, but what do I want to talk to them about? And so I said, their relationships. I started reaching out to couples that I knew, having conversations. I was looking for the song to put to it. I came across the song and it's called Little Dream. It just is so perfect. It is such a blessing. I wanted another passion project and I wanted something that's in line with what I've always done, but just something that's very contemporary. And I think it's been very affirming for a lot of our men. It has even allowed other people who aren't gay to be able to recognize how valuable love is to us. So it's, again, that's, it's been such a gift. It's such a gift. 
all of them are great, but one of the ones, because I don't think we see enough of that in general within the queer community, but specifically in the black queer community, the elderly couple mm-hmm. and that one, oh, that was like, <laughs> that was just such a beautiful story that they shared with you. And I think it's an archive. What you've created is an archive, not just for us, but for future generations to see that this does exist. It can exist. You've talked about it, but you know we all talk about it in, in our circles about not negating interracial relationships. But my first choice is a Black gay relationship. And I want to see that more. I want to see that in media. And you've done it. Not that anything is wrong with interracial relationships, but I think that mainstream, gay mainstream media kind of pushes that when we're talking about Black people's involvement in the mainstream gay community, it usually is from the lens of what we look like with a white partner. But in our communities where we see each other and we're with each other, and we're more likely to be with a partner who looks like us. And people who just simply prefer Black love, I think it's important for us to understand what that looks like, what some of the challenges that we face as Black gay men who connect with each other and, and have had to overcome different I don't like to use the word trauma, but, you know, different life experiences and things like that. And what that means to navigate those and come together and be together and create something that's beautiful and and strong, even in a community that tells us that's not possible. We tell each other that. And I think it's less about us being capable of it and more about the fact that there are a lot of black gay men who feel they are unworthy of love. When you see couples who have been together 10, 15, 20, uh, 30 years, and they say, yeah, you know, we had to overcome that, but this is how we did it. It kind of serves as a resource guide Mm. for those of us who are working towards that and who want to build together. I look at some of the couples and I'm like, okay, fax that one up to God, fax that one up to God. (laughs) And that's good. That's good. I mean... The whole idea of representation in media is so that you can see somebody who looks like you doing things that you want to do, and now you have an image of it in your head, and you know you can do it. Being here in Europe, you're a creative, you're an artist, you're in media, and art informs us not only about the past and helps the future generations see what was there before them, but it helps those of us in the present. Mm-hmm. It was just very recently, I was talking to a Black friend in L.A. and then a friend in England, and the question came up of why can't we find Black love, or is it harder for us? I don't agree with that. I don't want to believe it's not possible. I can believe it's more possible in seeing images that you're projecting and promoting with your platform. I agree. I thank you for that. I thank you for what you're doing here because, I mean, this is important too, you know, especially to call it the Black gay diaspora. That's so loaded. This is important. I started traveling years ago outside of the U.S. and I tell people I've seen Black people everywhere except one country here, at least in Europe. That's great. You know, as we know, as Black people, it's like, oh my God, I'm not the only one. But, (laughs) you know, I wanted to narrow it down more and say, well, I know I can't be the only one here who's queer. (laughs) Through this platform, I'm finding that out and also finding out, yeah, we're specific and we're unique within our countries. But me, this joy and meeting people whose origins are from Nigeria, from Cameroon, from Malawi, from 
the Congo and as a black person, just is just building this sense of pride and being black. Yes. We know as black people, as people in the new world that we're kind of mixed up, but again, back to art and, you know, European art, I see now why quote unquote white people feel proud of themselves because they see themselves projected. They see themselves promoted. And not just projected, but when you look at white people, they see themselves projected as kings and queens and gods and lords, as opposed to what we get seen at (laughs) (laughs) traditionally as black people. You know, you look at us, you know, every now and then you might see a painting of uh, us up in the juke joint or something like that, which speaks of our style or our rhythm of our blues. But very rarely do you see pictures of black god black kings or if we see it we have become so accustomed to seeing white people with them crowns on that when we see a black person with it we automatically pick apart why they don't deserve to have that crown on their head Mm. and even as somebody who creates and i don't just create for our community many of, of the consumers of the art they will immediately look at films that say some of us do and they will go why they shoot it like that? Why that actor got that shirt on? What was the budget for this? As opposed to going, wow, we have another black gay film. And if we support this, and if we get the momentum behind this, maybe this person get a bigger budget from a studio. And then when that happens, now we can bring in a couple of A-listers. We can get some gay stylists from our community. We can get some people who do some makeup. We can get some choreographers, you know, we can get some clothing designers. But when we look at what we're doing and we automatically pick it apart, that doesn't help anything. Look at the gift that this was created and expand from there. This was created, not just the fact that it's created, but what some of us have to overcome in order to do it. So many of us have been told since we were kids, like you look at white kids versus black kids. White people will let their kids wear capes and fly around and jump up on tables and do this and that. And they go, mommy, I'm a this and that. And their mom just go, yes, you are. And you're a good one. You let a black child go to his mom and say, hey, mommy, I'm a this. You get your black ass in there and wash them dishes. Or they see that child climbing. Get down before you hurt yourself. And so now when you go through life and it's time for you to take a risk, you're afraid to take a risk because you're scared you might hurt yourself. You're scared that the worst may happen. And I was thinking about that yesterday while I was in here cleaning the house. Slavery, of course, was trauma. And a lot of our parents raised us through a lens of fear. And when you're raising a child through a lens of fear, it's because you want them to survive. But a lot of times that's the very thing keeping them from really living. I have to find it and I can send it to you on Twitter. My friend G in the UK sent it to me. She's American, Dr. Joyce. I can't think of her last name, but she talks exactly about that and how we still haven't really addressed that part of history. It was trauma, but our daily experiences were still filtering out trauma or finding ways to filter out trauma. And specifically to your point of children and how we raise our kids, you know, when we go out in public, don't make me look bad, you know, make sure you don't get messy to make sure you don't get dirty. Don't be too loud. And like you said, you know, other groups or kids are running around all over the place. They can do whatever they want. And they grow up with that sense of confidence that they can go into a space and they have a right to be there. Yeah. 
But black people, not only are those issues there that, you know, we don't deserve whatever, but then it's also feeling like we have to work. And a lot of times because of circumstances, you do have to work a little bit harder. You do have to be better. But that versus the audacity of being horrible (laughs) and coming into a space and knowing that you just deserve to be there, that says a lot. Yeah. Uh, Early interview I did, she's out of Oregon. She has an art gallery there. And she talked about how we're so focused on being the best that when we get what we want, we don't take the time to enjoy it. Yeah. We even do that to each other when you complete something. So what's next? And it could have taken you however long to do this and that. You had to overcome all kinds of internal shit to do it and gather resources and do this and do that. Like, why can't we celebrate this and you let me rest and then we figure out what's next after that? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I just want to thank you so much. Again, I'm truly, this is one of these, and I really mean this, these interviews, I had no concept of what this was when it came to be two years ago. But, you know, meeting and interviewing someone, I'm like, dude, this is like a true, like, wow moment for me. So I'm just really thankful and grateful that you came onto this platform. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Do you have any final thoughts or insights? Just be good to yourself. Take your time. Enjoy life as much as you can. Do your best to believe in the best. I like that. (laughs) And where can we engage with you online? Instagram at Samson McCormick. S-A-M-P-S-O-N-M-C-C-O-R-M-I-C-K. Also Twitter, at Official Samson. YouTube, great content is on YouTube. Great content is on Amazon Prime, the films that are there. SampsonComedy.com. I'm always touring. Knock on wood. I'm always booked to perform at some great places. So, you know, you never know where I may be coming. So just stay tuned and and make sure you get a ticket because most of the times the shows do sell out. Well, I'll make sure to share that information too. So uh, again, thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time. 